Our message this morning comes from Psalm 90. Let me to read it to you. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble, and they are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger, your wrath according to the fear of you, So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad in all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish us, establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This is the word of God. morning. Good to see all of you this morning. It's a bit of a curiosity, it's a bit of a fascination for me to see uh, this church, where it is. Uh, Most of you don't know who I am, some of you do. Um, Mark does, and uh, Siobhan does, Uh, Paul does as well, Paul and Jessica both. Uh, I still remember actually when I first met Paul and Jessica back in their days back at uh, Calvin CRC in Dundas. Uh, I filled in a couple of times for Paul. We got to know each other a little bit. And Paul decided to, uh, to leave the CRC and join the PCA. And I still remember the days when the core group, uh, Grace Valley, the core group, they were worshiping at New City for, uh, for a little while. So it's great to see how you've grown. It's great to see and celebrate with you how God has been faithful among you. So praise God. It's good to see all of you. And thank you for welcoming me. Thank you for having me this morning to worship with you and to share the word of God, uh, from Psalm 90 specifically. I don't know how many funerals you've been to, but the most memorable funeral that I attended was not a funeral per se, but a celebration of life. I was asked to give a brief talk by the mother of a young lady who unexpectedly took her own life. And many people at that event shared 
zany stories and humorous anecdotes of the good times they shared with a young lady. They said she wouldn't want us to be sad. They said she would want us to be happy. But there was not a single acknowledgement that day of the fact that the young lady had actually died. There was no sharing of the grief that people were trying so hard to suppress. It was as if acknowledging reality would be to concede defeat. There was intense pressure to be artificially happy, to be lighthearted, to put on a brave face. And in a cruel irony, it was the most oppressively morbid funeral I've ever attended. As I was uh, preparing for this sermon, I thought of another funeral. It was the first funeral I attended where the person who died was someone close to me, my grandmother, who had been a constant presence in my life, a second mother to me in many ways. I remembered how the whole thing from the funeral service to the burial to the ride home was one big blur for me because my eyes were filled with tears the whole time. I remember this intimate moment that I shared with my mother after the funeral when my mother and I cried together in my bedroom as we mourned the loss of her mother and the loss of my grandmother. And that day I learned an important lesson about funerals. I learned that funerals are not for the dead, but for the living. And to take away opportunities for loved ones to grieve their losses in community is to do a great disservice to the mourning. And I tell you these two stories because they illustrate both our desire to deny death and our need to mourn death. These two things, our desire to deny death and our need to mourn death, are ever at war within us. Why? And what does the Bible have to say about these things? It turns out quite a bit. We want to look closely this morning at Psalm 90 and think about what it might look like to live with one foot in the grave, so to speak, and find that it need not be an exercise in morbidity, but an exercise in life-giving hope. So number one, the eternality of God and the impermanence of people. In your bulletin, you have those two points put, to, uh, put separately. I'm just uh, bringing them together. The eternality of God and the impermanence of people in verses 1 to 6. The cause of our mortality, verses 7 to 11. And a prayer of hope beyond the grave, verses 12 to 17. First, the eternality of God and the impermanence of people. Now, in the introduction, we read that Psalm 90 is a prayer of Moses, the man of God. This will become a relevant detail, but, I, uh, but since my name is also Moses, in order to avoid unnecessary confusion, I will mostly refer to the author as the psalmist. Um, and the psalmist, in verse 1, begins with a declaration of confidence in a God who has been our home, our refuge for all generations. This is a personal declaration. He says he has been our dwelling place, our refuge, a safe place, a place of peace, a place of belonging. God is our home. 
Then he says, God has been our dwelling place for all generations. Before Israel, even before the mountains were formed, the earth created, he has always been God. There was never a time, a time when he was not God. And that is a source of comfort for those who take refuge in him. He has always been God. He will always be God. He is their secure, eternal home. But that truth, the truth of God's eternality also brings into sharp contrast an uncomfortable truth. The very thing that makes God such a good dwelling place, such a safe home and a refuge, is also the thing that makes him so different from us. Namely, he's eternal. We are mortal. He is permanent. We are impermanent. And as we consider the implications of this reality, we find ourselves feeling, well, a bit uneasy, a bit disoriented as we consider the fact that all people must die. The psalmist says of God in verse 3, you return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. This is a dramatic retelling of the Genesis account of the fall of humanity where God declares the consequences of hum hum humanity's disobedience. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 19, he says, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And the psalmist goes on to compare our mortality to the eternality of God. A thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. Compared to the eternality of God, our lives are quickly fleeting and quickly forgotten. In his book, Remember Death, Matthew McCullough quotes Sigmund Freud, who argued that fundamentally no one believes in his own death. Fundamentally, no one believes in his own death. What Freud is saying is that we can't imagine a world in which we don't exist. We can't imagine a world in which we do not occupy the central place. We can't imagine a scenario in which we are not the main character in our own story. But the psalmist says, God sweeps away the years like a flood. Our lives are like a dream that is quickly forgotten, like grass that grows quickly in the morning but withers under the unrelenting sun. We are quickly forgotten. It is a sobering realization to remember, to think about this idea that within a couple of generations after my death, after I die, a couple of generations afterwards, my grandchildren will likely not even know my name. That's a deeply humbling and more than a little troubling thought. Because most people in our society never really seriously consider the implications of their mortality. Rather, we choose to live in the perpetual illusion of our immortality. The prospect of our death is too frightening, too unsettling. 
And this has always been the case since the days of Adam and Eve. You may or may not know the uh, old British comedy troupe Monty Python. Uh, one of the sketches that Monty Python is best known for is called the Parrot Sketch. Uh, one of the uh, one of their best-known uh, sketches, and uh, the, the, the character played by John Cleese tries in vain to return to the shopkeeper a dead parrot that he was sold. And, and he gets so exasperated at one point that he begins to rattle off a list of euphemisms for death that make clear that the parrot is indeed dead. So he says of the parrot, it's passed on. The parrot is no more. It has ceased to be. It's expired and gone to meet its maker. This is a late parrot. It's a stiff, bereft of life. It rests in peace. If you hadn't nailed it to the perch, it would be pushing up the daisies. It's kicked the bucket. It's run down the curtain and joined the choir invisible. This is an ex-parrot. We've always been uncomfortable with death. And even the very mention of death is now considered inappropriate for polite conversation. Hence, the endless euphemisms for death. What do people inevitably say to you when you bring up death in everyday conversation? Don't be so morbid. Every once in a while, we let slip our fear, our grief, our thoughts about death, and then we feel the need to apologize. Quickly, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Let's talk about something happier, more lighthearted. Jeffrey Gore, an English sociologist, calls this roping off of death from polite conversation as the pornography of death. How talking about death has become taboo in much the same way that speaking of sex was considered taboo in the 19th century. And the development of modern medicine has served to strengthen and justify our aversion to facing death head on. So much so that it has placed our society in a unique position amongst almost every other in history. 300 years ago in the average North American town, death was everywhere. It was unavoidable. As an example, uh, in the late 1600s in Landover, Massachusetts, one in three children died before the age of 21. As a pregnant woman, there was a good chance that you would not survive childbirth. The average life expectancy just over 100 years ago in, uh, was in the late 30s. Today, the average life expectancy is nearly 80, 80 years old. And not only have we been successful in postponing the inevitable death that awaits us all, we have managed to sanitize death. We have managed to sanitize our society of the presence of death by sedating the sick, the dying, in sterilized, segregated surroundings. 
1993, Yale surgeon and professor of medicine Sherwin Newland, in his book How We Die, described the intensive care unit as a secluded treasure room of high-tech hope within the citadel in which we segregate the sick so that we may better care for them. He said it is a powerful symbol. The ICU has become a powerful symbol of our society's denial of the naturalness, even the necessity of death. Modern medicine, as wonderful as it is, has had the side effect of engendering a culture in which we are allowed to practice, in fact, encouraged to practice, a powerful, pervasive self-deception of our own immortality. That is until the illusion comes crumbling down. Everyone eventually comes face to face with the uncomfortable reality that our lives are like the passing day, a dream quickly forgotten. Our lives are like morning grass that grows with such promise but fades with futility. And that's a scary thought. And that's why we prefer to deny death instead of dealing with it. One of my wife's closest friends died a couple of weeks ago from cancer that had spread throughout her body. She was in her late 30s. One of the saddest things about her last days was the persistent denial of suffering and death that pervaded her family and her support group. They're all professing Christians, but their understanding of God their understanding of the Bible had no room for suffering and death. So right up to the very last few weeks of our life, they refused palliative care. They refused to make preparations. They refused to speak of the very possibility of her death, but rather spoke blissfully of the day when she would be fully well again, healthy and recovered. This was concerning, to say the least. Denying death doesn't make the problem go away. It just delays the inevitable when we have to face it head on. As Matthew McCullough says, says, the best way to enjoy your life is to get honest about your death. And I think he's right. If we're going to get honest about our death, we need to first understand why we die. The cause of our mortality in verses 7 to 11. Why do we die? And I'm not talking about the physiological, environmental reasons why our bodies break down and decay over time. I'm asking, could an eternal, all-powerful God not create beings who would live forever? Well, of course he could. So why don't we live forever? Why are things the way they are? And the psalmist does not beat around the bush here. He says in verses 7 and 8, For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath, we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. The psalmist tells us in no uncertain terms that death is the consequence of God's judgment against humanity's sin. That means humanity was not originally meant for death. 
either physical or spiritual. Our suspicions are correct. We were created to live forever. Our bodies were not supposed to break down over time. It is our evil, our selfishness, our arrogance, mistreatment of others, self-righteous rebellion against God that has incurred the righteous anger of God. Hence, the judgment of God that we heard earlier. Return, O children of man. So because we live under the judgment of death, even the brief life that we live is characterized by hardship. The psalmist describes this in beautiful, poignant, but painful words in verses 9 and 10, where he says, For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble they are soon gone, and we fly away. As beautiful as these words are, they are troubling words that we'd rather not consider. So the question that the psalmist asks in verse 11 are highly appropriate. Who, who considers the power of your anger? Who considers your wrath according to the fear of you? Who indeed? To consider God's anger, to think about the wrath of God, our sin and death unsettles us. So it's no wonder that we deny death. It's no wonder that we numb ourselves to the terror of our mortality with entertainment, binge-watching Netflix, binging on food, drugs, and whatever we can get our hands on. In 2012, the mainline denomination, the Presbyterian Church USA, not to be confused with PCA, they wanted to add the modern hymn, In Christ Alone, to their newest hymn book. But they asked the songwriters if they could get permission to print the songs with altered lyrics. They wanted to change the line, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. They wanted to change that line to, till on that cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. The songwriters, Keith Getty and Stuart Townend, denied their request, and the PCUSA hymnal committee, the committee voted to exclude the hymn. Maybe you're like the editors of that hymn. Maybe you don't like the idea of an angry God either. We often superimpose our own experience of rage and vindictiveness on God. And we say we could not possibly worship God who is like us in that way. But the anger of God is not like our own. It is pure. It is true. It is holy. It is not petty. It is not vindictive. And the truth is that a God who doesn't get angry, a God who never gets angry over injustice and evil, is an impotent, spineless, ethically ambiguous God that no one would want to worship. 
To insist on a God who never gets angry about evil would be to insist on a God who doesn't even live up to our own standards of morality. And I would insist that the whole of humanity, all of humanity since the beginning of time is desperately hungry. We as a society, we are desperately longing for a God who in his just wrath is bound and determined to fix the brokenness, not just around us, but in us. The brokenness that we feel in us. The truth is that we have all sinned. We have all fallen short of God's standards. We all stand guilty and condemned under the just and righteous wrath of God. And even though we must physically die, as the external, temporal consequences of our sin. The good news of the gospel is that death does not have the final word for those who put themselves at the mercy of the God who is making all things new. And that's why talking about death, that's why discussing death, thinking about death, preparing ourselves and others for death does not have to be a morbid exercise. For those who follow Jesus, the one who rose from the grave, the prospect of death does not have to lead to despair and futility. We can open our eyes to the reality of death and live with one foot in the grave, so to speak. Because there is a greater, more glorious hope beyond the grave. And so we can pray the prayer of Moses in verse 12. A prayer of hope beyond the grave, verses 12 to 17. The psalmist, after having reflected on our mortality and futility of a life that is lived without hope, petitions God. He cries out to God, So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days. It's just another euphemism for saying, Teach us, Lord, to live with our eyes wide open to the reality that our days are numbered. True wisdom, true hope comes not from denying death, but from living our days with eyes wide open to the fact that we will die. So the psalmist responds to his mortality, not with despair, not with resignation, but with a cry of longing. He says, O Lord, return to us in mercy. As he faces the humbling, sobering reality of the fleeting nature of his life, the psalmist recognizes that his only hope in life and death is the personal, merciful intervention of God. So he continues in prayer, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. The hope to which Christians cling is founded on the good news that God answered the prayer of Moses in Psalm 90. 
God answered this prayer in a definitive moment in history. God did indeed return to us. He returned to us in mercy. He came to us in love so that we might find true joy and true satisfaction in him. Moses' prayer was answered when God clothed himself in human flesh and entered into human history to live the life that we could not live, to die the death we deserve, and to rise from the dead so that all who believe in him will one day rise together with Christ to a new life, a new body, an imperishable, everlasting joy that will never end. We can be sure that God will satisfy us with his steadfast love because in the death of Jesus, the wrath of God was fully satisfied. Like the psalmist, we can look death in the eye without despair because we are called to look beyond death and to fix our eyes on the risen Lord Jesus by whom God has given grace, through whom God has forgiven our sin reconciled us to himself. He has given us the right to live with him forever as his beloved children. And not only does this truth address the question of what happens after death, but it addresses what should happen in this life. One of the reasons why we avoid death is because we all wonder, does anything I do matter. At the end of this life, does anything survive the grave? Does my work matter? Do my relationships matter? Does my suffering matter? And this fear and longing are reflected in the prayer of Moses in the last two verses of the psalm. He says, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Isn't this our longing? Isn't this the collective longing of our hearts to know that our lives will be remembered, to know that our striving and pain are worth it, to know that it wasn't all in vain. And again, God answers the prayer of Moses in the person of Jesus. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us into his presence so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Everything we do for the glory of God, every decision made by faith, every hard conversation you have, every kind word you speak, every diaper you change, 
Every dish you serve, every tear you shed, none of it is meaningless. Everything is meaningful in Christ. Because everything you do in Christ is preparing you, is producing in you, is achieving in you an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. In the same way that God used the crucifixion of his son to achieve the salvation of his people, God is using everything that happens in your life to produce in you an everlasting, imperishable, undefiled, unfading treasure that will outshine and outlast every treasure that we can cling to in this life. It is is worth it. Every pain, every sorrow, no loss in life, not even the loss of life itself can undo the work of Christ that will achieve in you and for you an eternal hope. If your hope is in Him. So that begs the question, Where is your hope? Is your hope in what you can do? What you can do to establish the work of your hands? Is your hope in your ability to leave a lasting legacy? Are you looking to find meaning and significance in what you can squeeze out of life in your own power? Is your hope for this brief life alone? Or does your heart long for something more? Friends, God has designed you to be satisfied in Him. He has designed you for eternity. So I urge you this day to put your hope not in yourself, but in the crucified and risen Christ, whose finished work guarantees for you a hope that goes beyond the grave. And when you die, as Moses says, you will fly away. Not to nothingness, but you'll fly away to the everlasting God who has been our home for all generations. Let me finish with this question. What are you grieving today? What are you grieving? In this life, we will have trouble, Jesus said. In this life, we must grieve. Paul says there is a qualitative difference between the way that Christians grieve and the rest of the world. He says Christians do not grieve like the rest of humanity who have no hope, 1 Thessalonians 4. Even as our youth passes to old age, even as the passage of time, the ravages of disease and injury and sickness, worry, sin, betrayal, remind us of our mortality, our grief need not lead to despair. If you've ever seen someone die of cancer, you know that the last few months of their lives 
can be very hard. It was hard for my wife and I to see photos of our friend, the friend that I mentioned earlier, of this still young woman who was once so healthy, so full of life and vim and vigor, wasting away, unable to eat, unable to do much else but sleep, growing skinnier and sicklier by the day. That's what we could see with our eyes. But it's what we couldn't see with our eyes that gave us hope for our friend, Becca. What we couldn't see with our eyes was the mysterious, secret, powerful work of the Spirit that was renewing her inner self. We clung to the hope that her suffering and loss and regrets were achieving for her an incomparable weight of glory because her hope was in Christ. So friends, if your hope is in Christ, God does not waste your suffering. He does not waste your grief. He will take all that you have lost and he will make it all meaningful. He will take all that is wasting away and make it all beautiful. So grieve. Pour out your tears to the one who is making all things new. Pour out your fears and your cares and unrequited longings. Cast at his feet all of your cares and heartaches over broken relationships and broken promises and broken bodies. Stay close to him. And if you've run away, come back to him. Come back to the Lord who has been our dwelling place throughout all generations, the one who is pledging himself to be our dwelling place. When our bodies decay and this age comes to an end, if you put your faith in him, he will wipe away your tears. He will give you an imperishable body and dwell with you forever. Let me finish with these words from Matthew McCullough. The more deeply we feel death's sting, the more consciously we will feel the gospel's healing power. The more carefully we number our days, the more joyfully we'll hear that death, death's days are numbered too. And the more we allow ourselves to grieve the separations death brings to our lives, the more fully we will long for the world in which he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. Thank you, Lord, that we need not grieve and face the reality of our mortality without hope. Thank you that even our tears are shed in the refuge of the hope that you give us, hope of eternality beyond the grave. Or would you grant us the courage to stare death in the eye without flinching, knowing full well that Christ has crushed the power of death and his resurrection. 
calls us to grieve the losses of this life with faith, hope, and love, knowing full well that our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that outweighs them all. In Jesus' name.